0: Welcome to Help from Future Self.
1: What's happening, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational KeyForge podcast by and for KeyForge friends. We are your KeyForge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen. and I am also called Alex. And I am joined this week by two of my very best KeyForge friends. We've got Se Steel, hey, and Boulevard Blake. What's going on, Coach? Yo, what's going on? Not too much. Excited for today's conversation. I think my favorite episodes are always the one where we get to have kind of a free-form topic conversation because you never really know where they're going to go. And I think I always learn a little bit just from talking things through, saying things out loud, having like flaws in my own reasoning pointed out, and hearing things from other people from different perspectives. We're going to be talking about lockouts in KeyForge today.
0: Ooh, the dreaded lockout.
1: So- I want to start things off just by talking a little bit about definition of lockout because there's a couple different ways you can look at this. Let's start things off just by pointing people very quickly to a really excellent article that our friend Lady Aurora wrote on the Timeshapers blog about a hard lockout versus a soft lockout. Um, it was written some time ago, so there's been lots of new cards since then, but I think that it still basically applies. What we're talking about is the difference between the game is over, a true hard lockout, versus a soft lockout where your opponent is severely impeded in some way. So like Sydney, for example, we were talking about hard lockouts in the sort of preamble to us starting recording the show. There's really only a couple of them.
2: Yeah. When, when your opponent can't make any choices on their turn and it it comes to their turn and they either they're, they're forced to do a specific thing or they cannot do anything. So like if somebody calls control the week and calls a house that you just don't have anything on the border in your hand, and you have to pass, and you do literally nothing. That's that's kind of like a hard lockout.
1: Mm-hmm, indeed, and that can only be done by like very small number of things in KeyForge. Like obviously, Restring Guntis is the old school lockout card that was only printed in one set. Tesmol came around in two AoA. Sets. Was it two sets? Really? Was the second yep. one
0: Coda and AoA?
1: Oh wow! So Tesmol existed at the same time as Restring Guntis. Wow, that is. That is brutal.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, but uh, Tesmol being the one where if you have two Tesmol on the board or a Tesmol in Rocket Boots, you can replicate the Restring Guntis experience. Um, oh, yeah. And the last one is a very edge case one. It is Control the Weak plus Witch of the Eye plus Dominator Bobble to be able to control uh, your, your Witch of the Eye on that turn. So... That's not like totally impossible, but it's certainly less rare than something like just having a Restring Guntus in the deck. But the, the danger, of course, of having lockouts is that it's kind of antithetical to one of the great things about Keyforge, which is that Keyforge is oftentimes a game of interplay between two players. Um, as opposed to many other popular collectible card games where there's such things as one-turn kills or locking your opponent entirely out of being able to like actively play the game with you. Keyforge is sort of philosophically a game of there has to be interaction. And so, you know, putting in lockout cards has been something that I think the designers have been quite averse to.
2: I actually, I disagree a little bit. I do think that there is a a version of Keyforge where two people are playing solitaire across the board from each other. Mm-hmm. And the first person to get what they need and get three keys, win the game without having to interact with the other person could win. But there is what lockouts introduce is forced interaction between you and your opponent. Mm-hmm. I guess
1: I should I should qualify that statement slightly. I think that that was a far more prevalent style of gameplay in Coda era. But yeah. ever since then, I think design has changed to get away from that. They want you to interact on the board. They want people to have to like deal with each other rather than just racing to three keys without actually interacting. So you're, you're, you're very correct, I think. But uh, I certainly think it's something that they've moved away from, which is probably why cards that allow you to actually lock out your opponent have been so thin on the ground since the very early days.
2: And there are also cards out there that they are a great lockout if you get them in very specific situations or if you get them early in the game. Whereas if you get them late game or after a certain set of cards has already gone through your hands and into your discard pile, they won't be as effective. And those Although they are a little more finicky, I think that's that's kind of on purpose because if if the game has evolved to where lockouts are more are, are less common, then the game of Keyforge actually gets to continue to be played more often.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. I mean, we have the the classic lockout that existed, which created a slew of erratas with the the most famous Keyforge deck, which I think is uh, Gasolino Maximiliano. Yeah. Yes. Which created a state where it was like it was almost a lockout, just because the that George could have his turn last for so long. It didn't even matter that that he wasn't wasn't always necessarily stopping his opponent, although he did have the potential with his control. Of the weeks he literally just played the turns for so long. It was like a turn lockout in a way because the other person didn't get to play.
1: Sure. Mm-hmm. that is such a
0: cool deck that that exists and it's one two vault tours under two different conditions i think that's such a neat thing to exist in the game
1: yeah oh totally i want to see it play up against that insane uh double double uh genka deck that has like five <laughs> chains on it or something I-, I would love to see those two go head to head and see what that would be fun
0: yeah
2: that's just a race right there
1: yeah. Um, so, just to quickly to sort of bring up the idea of what a soft lock is, um, as I, I think properly defined by Lady Aurora in the excellent article on time shapers, we'll see if we can throw that into the show notes. We'll um, do. It just basically is. Something that you can recur turn over turn that makes certain lines of play really disadvantageous. So we're thinking about things like being able to recur nature's call. So either using Witch of the Eye or Glimmer. Um, In fact, there is a whole term for nature's call plus Glimmer. The Glimlock combo and it has the word lock in the title specifically because it can lock your opponent out from being able to play creatures because it just keeps returning them, them to their hand. There is, however, ways out of that lock, which is you just start discarding the creatures and start digging for actions that will hopefully allow you to take the glimmer the witch of the eye off of the table or otherwise block the person from hitting the the combo on their turn. So they're, they're a soft lock is a good term for it because there's ways around it. It doesn't end the game. Whereas the hard lock is the literal, we might as well, I might as well concede at this point. There is no way for me to get past this. I have no means to get at it, which is, I think also what differentiates it from a lot of other sort of very disadvantageous, like uh, my deck has no answer for this types of um, decks like Quixels and Hearts of the Forest decks and things like that, because generally speaking, you still have options on your turn they might be bad options but they're not the same as you literally have no option.
2: A good example of that in Dark Tidings is actually uh, chronophage. It's the uh, Logos creature where it says your opponent's creatures and artifacts gain omega because it, it makes it so you, you can still play a card, a turn, well, a, a creature or an artifact, a turn, but that also it doesn't quite take into consideration things that are already on the board or action cards. So again, you're you're digging in your deck for for action cards to try and get this one card off the board. And if though the rest of the deck doesn't kind of support this one card, then the lockout really doesn't stick.
0: No, it's it's a much better early. It's definitely an early uh, lock sort of scenario.
1: So let me ask you this. Um I know that we've had conversations in the past where we've danced around the idea of, you know, a competitive deck in a non-competitive setting. Um, being that Restoring Guntus is not a combo, it's literally just a card that occurs in Coda, and it might be in an otherwise really crummy deck. Is it fair to say that hard lock is not something that should be barred from casual play? Or is it a more subtle distinction like than that? Is it something that you should inform your opponent of so that the option to say, I'm not interested in playing a game like that? Uh, or is it something that's just, you know, all whatever, you know, we, you can play whatever you want in casual play and uh, we don't need to be worried about it as being rude or, um, you know, sort of anti-sportsmanlike.
0: Orny, you had a discussion about this, didn't you, in the Discord?
2: Oh yes. I I actually think that this is it is inappropriate in casual play. That that could just be a, a hot take, personal opinion here, but I do not think that you should show up to casual play whether online or in person with a, a lockout deck of any kind, especially if that's its win condition. If a Restoring Guntus is in your deck, but your win condition is something entirely different, then sure, that's much more appropriate. But if you are going to play a game with people who aren't coming to an event to, to have their, their butts whipped or to play at the highest level possible, then they're just going to walk away frustrated. And it's definitely the, the emotions you're looking out for when you choose what deck you want to play at casual.
0: Is it, is it considered bad form to bring one that has a Lion Boutram and a Bond the Armorsmith with your Restring Guntis? Is that bad form? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: maybe you can get, uh, like, a Legacy Restring Guntis with, like, Ghost Form or something like that. You know, it just never leaves the table. Is that is that bad form? Um, <laughs> you know what? If I had that deck, I would never play it in casual. But uh, I, I guess I basically agree with you, Sydney. I think my... Big issue with it is that it's hard to make a hard and fast rule about it. Um, I don't like telling people they can't bring like their their coda decks because they have one card, like one single solitary card that could result in a lockout to a like a game. That seems very unfair, especially if somebody is like heavily invested in coda-type decks. Um, and you know, your your point about win condition is well taken, but that also relies upon us to, you know, mentally do that math and, and sort of say, okay, well, Restring Guntus isn't the core of this deck. It's just a thing that might happen. Um, and, you know, that that's, of course, going to lead to variability in people's ability to parse whether or not it's polite or not. Um, I don't mind seeing Restring Guntus in casual play. I'm just going to say it. Um, if somebody yes, brings sir. an otherwise smoking deck... That also has Restring Guntas. I might be a little bit more salty about it, but if it's just like an average Coda deck and happens to have Restring Guntas in it, that's just kind of the design of the game at that stage.
0: I'm just wondering. when We're talking about casual play. Are we saying, in the sense that, like, it's like a, it's an archon like using gem software casual play, or just like everyone showing up and playing together? There's no stakes. and It's just games happening. <sighs> oh. See, How are you defining this question. just out of curiosity? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I will
2: say my, my answer applies either way. I actually think that it's not necessarily the best idea to bring it, even if it's slightly competitive for gems. So, so you you want to get those wins or, or if you're even just playing with your friends and there's, there's no stakes on the line and you're testing something new. If you haven't introduced the fact that you may create a miserable experience for your opponent, I don't think that those decks are the right things to play with anyone who isn't there to play at the highest level.
0: Yeah, I'm with Sydney. If if you make it known that this exists and so that, and if people are like, no, well, I really don't want to play decks like that tonight. Can you play something else? That's fair. Or if you're like, oh, if they're like, oh, okay, that's fine. I understand. I'll, I'll bring something uh, comparative as well so we can have like a, a good matchup, which at the end of the day, in any casual environment, I want to have a game that ends with both my opponent and I at two keys and we're both pushing for check and it's going back and forth. If right? I'm not having that experience in a casual format, then uh, we did something wrong in the lead up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually a very good argument. Um you know, I've I'm I'm not gonna lie, I've brought hot fire to, to you know, chain bound events and things like that when I really wanted Same. the prize that was on display that was uh, on offer, you know. Um it, it happens, right? Um you know, I, I think that if it's a consistent pattern in your play and it's alienating other people in your play group, it's something that has to be addressed. Every once in a while you bring something you don't even realize is way above the level of what everybody else brought to the table. And then you feel kind of yeah. bad afterwards. As I did that time, you'll recall when I uh, uh, brought a break uh, deck to one of our events, uh, Blake, very, 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 like just pre-pandemic as you'll recall.
0: Um, I did the same thing. I brought a deck that had the this crazy way of using caller of subordination and Lord Invidious and I and then I had ways of going through your deck through bore knits and just getting rid of your removal and I didn't realize the deck did that and I was like, oh dang, this deck is actually <laughs> really oppressive.
2: So the difference between that and a lockout I feel like is the the frustration that is being felt on the other side of the table. Like if you if you race an opponent, like if you bring a a fire deck and you are kicking your opponent's butt, if they still are playing their game and doing their thing, whatever their deck wants to do to the best of their ability they're still playing keyforge i feel like if they're sitting there watching you play and then not being able to take their turn or doing something super suboptimally because that's their only choice Mm -hmm. turn after turn that's a very different feeling and i guess i guess i'm getting all emotional this episode but it's not necessarily (laughs) something i want my casual game to be that's no that's fair
1: that's very legitimate, and it's you know if I if I'm gonna to be totally honest, the reason why even though I'm like the the Quixel you know champion, I I will talk about Quixel forever. I love playing Quixel decks. I love playing all kinds of Quixel decks. I don't bring them to casual games because if somebody's not ready for that style of gameplay, it's not fun for them, and then it's not fun for me because I feel like I ruin somebody's game. Um, so, you know, I, I think that equally applies and uh, even more so applies to lockout. But I do want to make a point here, and I think it's an important one. Like, there's no guaranteed lockout, even if you're playing like a lockout win condition deck, even if you're bringing hot fire double Tezmol rocket boots or, you know, easy to recur, bring back from, you know, the uh, bring back from the dead with an arise restring Gun to deck or any one of the different ways that you might be able to recur or control the weak. No matter what, like, you still have to rely on a scenario in which your opponent doesn't have anything in the house that you're calling. So there's no guarantee that you can make that happen, even with the best lockout deck in the world.
0: Okay, so how about we go into when you're considering a lockout?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think there's there's two things that you need to... to Weigh in when you're considering a lockout, and I think one is when you're pushing for check, and you can do some form of a lockout where you make your opponent choose a house or or go into somewhere where you know they don't have amber control. That's that's option A, and then the option B is the one where okay, you're going to do something where you're causing your opponent now that they can't play cards, and it may have a long term thing, but you may lose that moment to go into check. So I think it's like a it's like a like we said a disruptive lockout or is it gonna go a little bit harder into it and and what what do you think you you do in that, that moment like what, what do you think what would you weigh Sydney would you oppose it to both of you
2: I like that you put that into two different categories because that makes a lot of sense to me that is exactly what I'm considering when I'm creating a lockout whether I can stop my opponent from doing their thing or whether I can stop them from stopping me from doing my thing. So if I am gonna forge, I really do want to stop them. That is my first and foremost uh, thought in my mind. Because every step closer to three keys is is probably the right step to take. But again, like you said, the long term also matters. So if there's something in their hand that's gonna set them up to have a really big next turn, or something along the lines of uh, putting something on the board that I can't control, I will absolutely swerve them away from that. If I think I can get the key in a, following turn. But I also am hoping that my lockout sticks. So it also depends how long I think I have them under my thumb, because if it's only a turn, I will definitely take the key over preventing them from doing their long-term strategy. If I think this lockout is going to prevent them from doing their long-term strategy for a longer period of time, I will let them take my key away from me if the lockout holds.
0: And just to put this into perspective, this means that you have looked at their discard, you know what they could have in terms of probability in hand, and you're making a decision based on that. So it's still no guarantee. Like, you know, that if they don't call this house, but you're saying that you will take that risk if you feel like the, it exists, the potential. Yeah.
2: Or something along the lines of like, which house I'm going to pick. So even the, the not hard lockouts. So for example, like like chronophage or something, if I have logos in my hand and then I have unfathomable and I have brain drain and brain drain might be able to let me look at their hand and put a card back on top of their deck if I think they might have something that will take me off key versus chronophage may stop them for a longer period of time playing their own strategy. If I have a way to protect chronophage and think that that lock will last a lot longer, I will play that and risk them having something in their hand to take me off key. If I don't, if I put that out there and they already have creatures or something on the board that can get rid of that, then that lockout won't last. And I will absolutely pick Unfathomable and play dra- Brain Drain instead. Yeah, it's a
1: it's a, a point in the game question, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, we've all played games where, you know, it's it's down to the last key and you're within a couple of amber of your opponent. And it's the who's going to forge that third key first and end the game. And I... Oftentimes, you know, classically what we would see with a lot of control the weak decks and other sort of lockout decks was people waiting until they were just about to forge that final key and then hitting the control the weak Mm -hmm. turn to make sure that a person had to choose Sanctum or something else that might not have the, the, the amber control in it. And I think that's a sound strategy, right? Like at that point, you have no reason not to do that. Earlier in the game, I think I favor Sydney's perspective. I like the idea of impeding my opponent turn over turn, forcing them to have to deal with something so that I can really, like, reinforce my board, dig through my deck some more, and and basically get, you know, card advantage, board advantage, and whatever advantage I have. Because most lockouts aren't going to last forever, so better to, you know, use it, trip your opponent so that you can get a little bit ahead in the race.
0: Hmm. I actually love the end of game control the week, so you can't call untamed and use your key cheats. I like that one a lot. That one's <laughs> yeah. pretty pretty powerful.
1: Or you can't call shadows and use uh, yep. your steals to to take me off.
0: Okay, and then let's say we get to a position where you successfully get the lock, like the hard lockout. Restring Guntas is on board. They they tell you they're like they're like oh you got me in there and they literally like discard one card or play one card and then draw. Uh, One thing to note during this moment in time, I think, is do not play any cards that allow your opponent to discard from their hand, shuffle, anything like that, Mm -hmm. any ways to remove cards. That is like the most 101 lockout advice you could possibly get is you do not want to do anything to allow your opponent to cycle their hand in any way. Because If they're just discarding one card and getting one back their opportunity to get a card that can actually remove your threat becomes even less and there is a moment too that exists i think in that where you need to also be considering playing your board to control theirs so they have nothing on board either because that is the, the ultimate lockout they can't call a house they have very little board presence and then there's really nothing that can be done. They're, they're praying that one card is going to be drawn that is some sort of removal. And at that point, you're in a pretty good position.
2: Oh, yeah. You definitely want to make sure that they have no ability to refresh in any way. So like paying attention to what they have on the board is, you're right, super important. But if leaving one or two creatures on the board in a certain house because you're going to be calling a different house, that's that that kind of thing is totally fine. But yeah, controlling every aspect of their gameplay is is definitely important to a lockout. And you might need more than just the card to do mm-hmm. it.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally 100%. I mean, uh, any kind of lockout, any kind of serious lockout, soft or hard, really does require you to pay attention to what's in your opponent's discard. You should know what the likelihood of them having a lot of cards in hand is. Sometimes you just notice they haven't called a house for like several turns. Sometimes you'll notice that they're way down and it's likely that they have a handful of X or Y. Um You know, those are the kinds of things that make soft or hard lockouts more plausible. And it's also the kind of thing that I I guess lends itself to more competitive play. Like I find I'm just less likely to ask my opponent if I can look at their discard in a casual game just because I like to keep casual games like light and fast moving. And, you know, who cares who wins because we'll play another one right after just for funsies. You know, that's kind of my thinking about it. But uh, it certainly is a style of deck that favors a very competitive mindset that also requires a lot of analysis to actually carry off well.
2: That's a great point. So how, how much a part of the competitive meta do you guys think lockouts are? Like, is it a must consider like a deck with a competitive, uh, with, with a lockout in it for a competitive setting?
0: I think they exist less as sets have gone on, as we talked about earlier on in the episode. So I would say no, it's not. And I think that the pieces that make it really viable uh, are more rare. So I don't think it's a must, but I think if you have it in your arsenal, it's definitely something to consider. But with that being said, I do think there's one format you should never bring lockout decks to, and that is adaptive. Because your opponent's going to be playing your deck and they will know their deck better than you. So they will know how to utilize that to really disrupt you being able to pilot their deck. And I've literally learned this from experience.
2: Oh, no. <laughs>
1: yes. Didn't we have a Restring Guntis lockout deck in our sealed uh, uh, Invitational Tournament that you and I both piloted a couple times, Blake?
0: I don't know if it was a lock, but it was... We did have it, so it really hamstringed people. But I, I have a deck that is, like, my highest rated AOA deck. It has that, what I said, Restring Guntis with a Lion Boutram and in a Bond And I've had moments where I've locked people out with it. And I had an adaptive game where my opponents would literally drop it early and knew where all their cards I could deal with were and just stop me from playing it. And I literally got just stuck. And it didn't actually like hard lock out, but it gave them such a huge advantage to build a board against me that by the time I dealt with it, like the game was for all intents and purposes over. And so I learned that I'll never bring that sort of lockout scenario to adaptive because your opponent knows their deck well enough to use it against you when you are piloting their deck and they're piloting yours.
2: What about a triad? Like, is it a situation where it is likely going to get banned the most, so it's good ban bait? Or do you think people will let you play it because it might actually not go off?
0: I think, I mean, my philosophy for triad is is I've, I've sung it from the rooftops. I'll sing it again. It's you bring three decks that are very similar because that way, no matter what they ban, you still follow through with the same plan that you always had in terms of archetype or something along those natures. And that's just the way I feel with it with triad is you bring three decks that are very similar in terms of the game they execute, whether it's rush, whether it's control, et cetera, et cetera. And that way, no matter what gets banned, you're still on your way to doing the plan you want. And whatever matchup they have they can't be like oh i have like let's say you have exactly that a lockout deck and they have the exact answer for any lockout deck they just make sure that deck stays and then no matter what you're not going to win with that deck so you lose the round
2: sure yeah
1: i guess my thinking on it is that uh, i still think lockouts are a lot rarer than than most um you know, people think when they think about like the classic lockout combos. So, you know, honestly, maybe it's in my case, I would just say, you know what, I wouldn't think it's a great band bait because I don't feel like it's a thing that I'm actually legitimately that afraid of.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Do either of you consider it a soft lockout if there is an artifact that is basically controlling the game and the opponent doesn't have any artifact control, like Heart of the Forest, Quicksil Stone, anything like that?
1: Yeah, totally. It's a soft lock because it makes one... If we're going by Lady Aurora's definition, which I like a lot, it's making one line of play extremely, extremely like inefficient, uh, undesirable, um, and can cripple certain styles of deck. So yeah, I would I would call Quixel and Heart of the Forest a soft lock.
0: I definitely think Heart of the Forest is... I got to a point where I was playing in a prime, and this person played it, and this was... I've, made, I've told this story for sure because it, it is the... The root of all my salt towards this card and we were we got up to like 183 ember each and it was just like it was like what's the point of playing and i'm literally playing my turns i'm like why am i doing this like i'm like i have no idea why we're still playing like it it felt so pointless because all we're doing is just playing cards stealing meant nothing no one's forging keys like the game was locked out until my opponent got to the point where they got their their key cheat scenario in place so it was just a matter of waiting for them to get into their their cards for their deck so they could do what they were trying to do the whole time and it it really sucked like it felt so bad like i'm literally praying we go to time and he doesn't get there that's actually was my only course of action but the the motion of playing just it, it didn't exist like i'm like i could steal some ember here but i was like but why like it, it makes no difference. Like if I gain more Ember and you lose some Ember, when you're over 150 Ember each, does it matter how much Ember right. you're getting or losing?
2: And especially going to time never feels good, especially when no. if that's your only out and everyone is thinking that that's your only out, then it's everybody, like it's in every, the back of everybody's mind. Are they slow playing? Like, and then the onus is on you and that just never feels good.
0: Yeah, the funny thing is I think my opponent was, if anyone, they were still playing, which was kind of weird because they were the ones in the, they were the one in the position where it didn't benefit them for it to go to time because I had more Ember at the end of the day, but it was such a weird game. Weirdest game of Keyforge I've ever played to this day, hands down.
1: So this has been a really interesting conversation, um, as I knew it would be, just because I think it's a topic that has a lot of different dimensions to it. We haven't by any means covered every single thing there is to say about it, but that doesn't mean we're not interested in hearing more about it. So if you are not a member of our Discord, you should absolutely join it because there's already been some conversation about this topic. You should also hit us up on Twitter because we would love to hear your thoughts about it. Of course, we cannot end an episode of Help From Future Self without the titular segment. This one's called...
0: Help from Future Self.
1: self. Blake, I understand you have one for us this week.
0: I do, yeah. And this is just uh, a little, I guess, words of wisdom from my own IRL play. Uh, My friend and I have been playing every Friday and we've been playing a lot of Mass Mutation and Dark Tidings basically exclusively, just uh, playing some Sealed every Friday. Uh, Sealed Adaptive, actually. It's been a ton of fun. Uh, You may have seen some videos on my YouTube showcasing those decks. But I have noticed that as I'm playing, especially with uh, Dark Tidings now, there's a lot of things that exist where you're putting a lot of tokens across multiple creatures. And one thing is, as we get back into IRL play, I found that when I had things in a tray, it actually, I found a lot of time I'm digging. And that takes a lot of time, especially when you're putting like a single point of damage on seven creatures. And you're trying to find which ones your one damage and then you got your threes, all that sort of stuff. So I found that uh, I got to a point where it was prudent to just dump the tokens on the table and have an easier access to them rather than being in a case. Unless you have a very great organization organizational system for your tokens, I would recommend maybe making them more accessible as we get back into IRL play, because there are definitely going to be things that are going to slow down gameplay that you are not used to, because on TCO, everything happens lightning fast. So, getting back into that rhythm of grabbing tokens, placing damage, all those things that exist within IRL play. Make sure you have your tokens very accessible or sorted so that you can access them easily when the time comes because playing Dark Tidings, there are a lot more tokens that I feel get put out onto the board now.
1: Great piece of advice. Wonderful piece of advice. Organization always leads to more fun games because it means that you're spending less time messing around with things that aren't direct gameplay and more time just playing the game. You can find us on Twitter at HFS Podcast. You can find me as Kazzy Gruen on the Crucible on Instagram and on Twitter. Sydney, where can they find you? What do you got going on?
2: I am, SC Steele on TCO and Discord, and uh, Keyforge Live is just two and a half weeks away at this point. It's kind of crazy, but super Whoa. exciting. We, uh, we have over 50 people coming, so we're actually, what we're aiming for now is to um, have more attendance than the smallest vault tour, which was uh, Collinsville. So come help us make this a reality, and uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, July 23rd through 24th at the Four Points by Sheridan, Milwaukee Airport. Come play a weekend of Keyforge with us.
1: Tremendous. Blake, where can they find you? What do you have happening? You
0: can find me on Twitter at. Uh boulevard blake that's blvd blake and of course go to my youtube as well where i'm posting tons of different content and if you're listening this thursday tonight i will be streaming a bunch of decks from uh mass mutations and dark tidings so uh come see me on my youtube there at 6 30 pacific 9 30 eastern
1: love it we'll be back again next week with oh so much more Keyforge conversation until then stay cool